Good morning, church family. Always a joy to gather with the people of God and to particularly hear you sing with such passion of the truths of who God is and what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. If you're visiting with us this morning, let me extend to you also a warm welcome. We're grateful for your being with us uh, today. It is our habit here at Woodlawn to take books of the Bible and to preach through those uh, books of the Bible. We are in the book of Exodus. But for Christmas season, for this Advent season, we're going to be looking at several key texts of scriptures that point us toward the truth of the incarnation. This week from Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6, we'll look at the incarnation reveals to us God's character. Next week from a New Testament text in Titus chapter 3, The incarnation enables our sanctification. The following week from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, which you studied this morning in Sunday school, the incarnation reveals to us the miraculous. And then for Christmas Sunday, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through, sorry, the Sunday before Christmas, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, the incarnation brings us God's revelation and for Christmas Sunday from 1 Timothy chapter 1, the incarnation brings us salvation. So we're going to reflect on the incarnation together with one another in a variety of different ways. This morning, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, as we study together, the incarnation reveals to us the character of God. The incarnation reveals to us the character of God. If you were in Sunday school, you studied that passage of Scripture in Isaiah chapter 7. You looked, I guess, at the entire chapter of chapter 7. And what do we know is taking place in Isaiah 7, 8, 9, and 10? There is an evil king that has been promoted over Judah Unlike his father, who was a good king, who was holy and righteous, King Ahaz is an evil man. One of the things that King Ahaz does in the life of ancient Judah is she introduces to her idol worship. He brings in idol worship in ancient Judah. Isaiah 7, 8, 9, and 10, in some ways... Is God's judgment against Judah and ultimately Ahaz, but tucked away in several key texts of Scripture, as oftentimes happen in these judgment statements, is this beautiful promise from God. Hey, Judah, don't worry. Don't be... Alarm, for you have this wonderful promise that a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Why? God is with us. Hey, Judah, don't be overly anxious. Don't let your hearts be filled with anxiety, God is going to do something miraculous among you. For, 
unto us a child is born. For unto us a son is given, and the government shall rest upon his shoulder. And he's going to be for you a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting Father. He will be a prince of peace. In the middle of those judgment statements is the hope and the truth of God's promise of a Messiah tucked right into the heart of the calamity. We have the joyful privilege of living on this side of that first advent. We have had the joy and the privilege of reading back into Isaiah and seeing that what Isaiah speaks of in Isaiah chapter 7 and Isaiah chapter 9 is the person of Jesus himself, God's Messiah. And we marvel this morning that in the incarnation, God has revealed his character to us. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 tells us he is the exact image. In other words, Jesus is exactly what God wanted you and me to know about himself. And that revelation of who God is is seen throughout the Old Testament, clearly articulated in the person of Jesus. And so we ask, who is this one that is a wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, and Prince, of peace. This text this morning is one of the texts that ancient Israel would have looked to for her understanding that God had indeed promised to her a Messiah. Isaiah is writing some 700 years before Jesus himself would ever arrive on the scene. And listen at the clarity with which Isaiah writes as he talks to you and me this morning about God's Messiah, Jesus. Hear these words from Isaiah chapter 9. We'll read verses 1 through 7 and focus this morning on chapter 9 verse 6. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. A promise in the midst of all of this destruction narrative 
of God's heartbeat for all peoples, not only for Judah and Israel, but for all peoples, Galilee of the nations, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Pele Yoates, Wonderful Counselor. El Gabor, mighty God, Aviad, everlasting Father, Shar Shalom, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. What is taking place in this narrative, Isaiah writes for us and images for us, is a work of God and God alone. What is it accomplished in the incarnation of the sending of God's one and only Son is a work of of God himself. And that work of God reveals for you and me exactly who is God. Who is this promised Messiah? Well, the Bible begins with a reference, and it mentions it twice for us. He is a child, and he is a son these two images note for us the humanity of this one who will serve as God's Messiah. We understand in the person of Christ, he is one who is fully God and fully man. No surprise here that Isaiah hones in on this image of his humanity, for we've already seen Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, a virgin shall conceive and she shall bear a son. Jesus in his humanity will be able to accomplish for you and me what we could not accomplish on our own. He will take the wrath of God by becoming a sacrifice. And it's only in his humanness that he is able to become sin. God himself cannot become sin. So Jesus in his humanness becomes sin for you and me. And in his becoming sin, we become the righteousness of God. Jesus is a son, a child. He is fully human. But notice the emphasis of this 
text of scripture, it's not on us. For to us, verse six, repeat it again, for to us. Rather, the emphasis of the text is the fact that a child is going to be born and a son is going to be given. And the question is raised, who will give the son? Who is this primary player in delivering to God's people, to Judah, to Israel, this Messiah. And we hear it at the end of verse 7. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. God is uniquely at work in this incarnation narrative that we see here in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. A name, a giving of a name, in antiquity, in the context of the Bible, is a revelation of one's very character. We don't place much emphasis today in the naming of a child. We tend to look on the internet and see what does, what's a cool name sound like, right? What's a name that nobody else is, is using? I want my name, I want my kid to have a unique name. And you give the kid a name and then all of a sudden, everybody around you has that same name, right? Here in the context of the text of Scripture, the giving of a name was revealing. What do we learn about this Messiah from the giving of his name? Look at this passage of Scripture. He will be called these four things, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He is a wonderful counselor. Isaiah is saying, in the giving of this, of this name, of this coming promised Messiah, that he is one who will embody miraculous wisdom. Or as our text of Scripture says, he will be a wonderful counselor. His wisdom will be perfect. He won't need a counselor himself. He won't need an advisor himself. He won't need anyone to grant him aid or, or counselor, for he is in and of himself the wonderful counselor. No greater wisdom can be given than the wisdom that this one shall give. This is who the Messiah will be. We see Jesus fulfilling this role as one who is marvelous counselor. I want you to look with me in the Gospel of John, and we're going to say together in John 3 and John 4, we're not going to turn throughout the entire Old New Testament. John chapter 3 and John chapter 4, we see Jesus at work fulfilling this promise of one who is a wonderful counselor, a miraculous counselor. 
In John chapter 3, you know this narrative well. There is this one who prides himself as being part of the religious elite of the day. Here is a Pharisee named Nicodemus. He is a ruler of the Jews, and he comes to Jesus when? At night. He comes to Jesus at night, and he has, he has some questions for Jesus. He's wanting to understand some things, Jesus knowing exactly what is on Nicodemus's heart makes some rather revealing statements to him. And Jesus says to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The text identifies for us in the designation that Nicodemus has come to Jesus at night is a reference not only to the time period at which Nicodemus comes to Jesus, but it's a reference ultimately to Nicodemus's heart. Nicodemus's heart is dark. It is far away from God, and Jesus knows it. So Jesus strikes right at the heart of what Nicodemus's greatest problem is, and in doing so, Jesus gives to Nicodemus the most wonderful counsel anyone could ever receive. See, friends, that counsel is the way in which your and my evil heart can be made right with God. How is that? By being born again. Listen to what Jesus would go to say to Nicodemus. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus gives counsel to Nicodemus to cure the greatest ailment of all times, the ailment of sin that separates us from God. Jesus is a wonderful counselor. But look right over a page in John chapter 4. The Bible tells us that Jesus is going to leave the Galilee region. He's going to make his way toward Jerusalem. But to get to Jerusalem, Jesus decides this time he's going to go right through Samaria. Uh Uh-oh. We have a problem here, do we not? How is this Jewish man going to walk through the heart of all of these pagan, wicked, evil Samarians? Jesus, the Bible tells us, said he must go through Samaria. And Jesus makes his way through Samaria, and he goes to Jacob's well. He's thirsty. And he gets to Jacob's well, and guess what? He meets a Samaritan woman there, does he not? You'll remember the narrative of, of this Samaritan woman. She, she, too, is at the well for a reason. She, like Jesus, is, is thirsty. And this woman is going to receive, like Nicodemus, counsel from God himself 
counsel that every single one of us needs so desperately to hear. You drink of Jesus and you will never thirst again. This is a narrative that John shows us and these two quick narratives back to back with Nicodemus, a religious elite ruler of the day, and now this, this poor Samaritan woman that no Jew would ever think to engage with. Jesus shows us the heart of the gospel narrative is for all people. Jesus is this one who is a wonderful counselor seeking to extend the kingdom of God to the Jews and to the Gentiles. We could continue with the wisdom of Jesus as one who is counselor. We could, for example, go to the Gospel of Matthew and look at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and we could see the wisdom of God that is woven throughout that narrative. As Jesus seeks to give to his New Testament followers an ethic of what it means to live rightly in relationship with him. We can see as Jesus seeks to still the hearts of the anxious people as he says to him, look at the birds of the air and the lilies of the field. And he, as he beckons you and me to seek first the righteousness of God and all of these other things shall be added unto you. Jesus is indeed this one promised in Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 who would be a wonderful counselor designation that Isaiah gives to this coming promised Messiah, but not only would he be a wonderful counselor, the Bible also tells us that he would be a mighty God. This word here, El Gabor, the word El, you hear, is a shortened version of the word Elohim that you're used to hearing perhaps more often. It's a word that is used throughout the Hebrew Bible. Who would be this one who is a mighty, victorious, warlike God? Well, Isaiah will actually answer it for us in this same section of Scripture. Isaiah 7, 8, 9, and 10 all go together. Look with me in Isaiah chapter 10. Isaiah is going to answer exactly for us who this Messiah would be. Verse 21, a remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the whom? To the mighty God. Yes, Jesus is a son. Yes, Jesus is a child. Yes, Jesus is fully human, but make no mistake about it, Isaiah doesn't leave us at the humanity of Christ. Isaiah brings us to the deity of Christ, and he shows us that this Messiah himself would be God. He is a mighty, victorious God. He is one 
who accomplishes, who fights for, who takes care of, who leads His people because He and He alone is God. How do we see Jesus fulfilling this promise of one who would be a mighty God. The narrative of Jesus being mighty God begins for you and me at the narrative of creation. Look with me in John chapter 1, and then we'll turn together to Colossians chapter 1. In John chapter 1, we hear of Jesus... We hear of Jesus as being one who was at the beginning with the Father. And listen to what John says about this Jesus in verse 3. And all things were what? Made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Paul, in writing the book of Colossians, pens for us that same truth beginning in chapter 1, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. The narrative of Jesus being a mighty God is a narrative that begins for us at the creation account. Jesus was God's agent of creation. And why do we go back to creation? Because it's in creation that God himself reveals to you and me that he is God. He is the one that has created everything that you and I see, that we experience, the relationships that we enjoy with one another. God is creator. And John, at the very beginning of his narrative, and reflecting on who the character and person of Jesus would be, shares with us that Jesus is God's agent of creation. We understand Jesus as one who is mighty God at the beginning through creation. But not only that, Jesus is one who performs miracles in the New Testament. In John chapter 2, what does Jesus do at the beginning of his earthly ministry? There at the wedding feast of Cana, he turns the water into wine. But listen at this narrative in Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24 as Uh, Jesus is on the road to Emmaus, and so are some of his disciples. Listen to what they say to Jesus. And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. Even the disciples of Jesus reflecting back on who Christ was, understands that there was something about Jesus' deeds that in and of themselves were mighty. Mighty in his ability to perform miracles, mighty in his ability to articulate the truths of the gospel. We see Jesus as mighty God through creation. We see Jesus as mighty God through his 
works of miracles. We see Jesus as a mighty God in his return. Matthew gives to us this promise, records for you and me this promise of Jesus. As Jesus communicates to his disciples that that he must go away, their hearts are filled with anxiousness. We, We see that in John chapter 14, for example. And here in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 30, Jesus communicates for his disciples his mighty deeds through his return. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all of the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with what? Power and great glory. We sang just a few moments, joy to the world, a hymn that ultimately points us to the joy of Christ's second advent. Jesus here in Matthew chapter 24 picks up on that same truth and reminds us that he is mighty God. And the revelation of him being mighty God is clearly seen in his return. He is one who is wonderful counselor. He is one who is mighty God. He is one who is, notice what the text of Scripture says, an everlasting Father. Isaiah has something else to say about this use of the word father. As he gets to the end of his narrative, look with me in Isaiah chapter 63. Isaiah is speaking of the day of the Lord, this day in which God is is going to return. We know that return to be in the image of, of Christ. It's going to be a day filled with vengeance, but also a day full of of mercy. And Isaiah captures that mercy in chapter 63. Look with me in verse 16. For you are our what? Father. Though Abraham does not know us, and Israel does not acknowledge us, you, O Lord, Lord, are our Father, our what? Redeemer from of old is your name. Isaiah, at the concluding portions of this text of Scripture, is pointing you and me forward to the return of Christ. And Isaiah continues with this theme of this one who is going to fulfill this this office, this role as as being one who is himself a, a father. But he's a father who is everlasting. He is, we might say, the eternal father. And this is what Isaiah is getting at in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, when he mentions that a virgin shall conceive a son, and you shall give his name Emmanuel, for Emmanuel means what? God with us. And how do we see Jesus fulfilling this role as one who is an everlasting Father? He's eternal. 
He himself is God. We see that revelation only in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, but we see it at the very beginning of Matthew, when the angel is revealing to Mary and to Joseph exactly what is taking place in the life of Mary. And the angel says to Joseph, Joseph, do not fear. And what does he tell him to name this child? Emmanuel, which means God with us. And we get to the end of the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew is bookended with, these, with this truth of Jesus as being one who is eternal. Matthew chapter 28, Jesus' departing words to his disciples. What does Jesus say to his disciples? I am with you when? even until the end of the age. Jesus is the everlasting, eternal Father for you and for me. There at the beginning of creation, there with his disciples, here with you and me today by the presence of His Holy Spirit. He is the eternal, everlasting Father. But Father, not only because of His eternality, but Father because He is one who forgives sins. In the Old Testament, who forgave sins? The priest would be a mediator Of whose forgiveness? God's. God is the one in the Old Testament who ultimately was one who forgave the sins of his people. What does Jesus do? Look with me again in the Gospel of Matthew as we see this narrative of Jesus in Matthew chapter 9. Showing us his mighty deeds, but showing us that he is Father, one who forgives sins. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. Uh Uh-oh, what does that do in the hearts of the scribes and the Pharisees? They say to him, wait a minute, this guy is blaspheming. Not blaspheming because of his ability and his power to heal the paralytic man, even though he does that. They rightly understood exactly what Jesus was saying when he said, your sins are forgiven. What was Jesus declaring? I am God. We see Jesus as one who is eternal. We see Jesus as one who is Father through his ability to forgive sins. Jesus is this wonderful counselor. 
Jesus is this mighty God. Jesus is this everlasting Father. And notice this last designation of his name. He is the Prince of Peace. Now you can imagine for the citizens of Judah hearing this word Shalom. Judah knew the shalom of God. They had experience under King Ahaz's father's reign. They knew what it was like for the peace of God to be per- pervasive in their community. But they also knew by experience what it was like to have that peace of God removed. So place yourself in Judah. It's 70-30. You've been ransacked already by a number of people, but you hear the evil, wicked Assyrians who were known for being barbaric in nature. Perhaps the closest modern expression of the Syrians would be Hamas and the atrocities that they carried out in Israel on October 7th. This is exactly what Assyria would do in Judah. But you hear these sweet words. There is one who is coming who is Sar Shalom. Did you hear it? A prince. A prince is going to be among us. A prince is going to rule, rule among us. And his primary designation will be one of peace. How do we see Jesus fulfilling this promise here in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, as one who is a prince of peace. The greatest way that Jesus brings about peace in your life and in my life is not by providing you and me with an experience of peace in our culture. The primary way that Jesus brings about peace is It's not one where everything in culture is rightly ordered. Listen to what Paul would write in Colossians chapter 1, verse 20, and through him, that is through Christ, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, doing what? Making peace, how? Through the blood of his cross. See, friends, the greatest thing that Christ has accomplished for you and me is by bringing you and me peace with God. Paul would tell us in Ephesians that you and I were the enemies of God. 
We were haters of God. How were we warring against God? We were warring against God and our rebellion against his sovereign reign through his son, Jesus. The Bible defines every person separated from God, separated from Christ, as being an enemy of God. But what does Jesus do for you and me? He brings us the peace of God. And how does he accomplish the peace of God? Through foolishness, through the foolishness of the cross, Paul tells us in Colossians in Corinthians chapter 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Jesus, through the sacrifice of his life, brings this promised peace to you and to me. So whatever we think about the atrocities of the Assyrians, whatever we think about the atrocities of Hamas, Whatever peace deal that we think might be struck between the Assyrians and and King Ahaz, he's going to try to do it. Whatever peace deal we think that might be struck between Hamas and, and Egypt and Qatar and Israel and the United States, those are only temporary expressions of peace. The only way for you and me to have eternal peace is through a right relationship with this Messiah. Mentioned in in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Through a relationship with the Prince of Peace, Jesus. He, through his work on the cross, brings to you and me God's salvation. But God through Christ, isn't just bringing us eternal, spiritual peace. He's also bringing us peace here and now between one another. Look with me in Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul is writing this letter to the Ephesians, a church that is divided between Jews and, and Gentiles. And he's writing to them about the unity that can be experienced. How? How does the church, made up of people from different countries, how does the church made up of people of different sexes? How does the church made up of people of different socioeconomic backgrounds. How in the world are we to get along with one another? Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, for he himself, that is Jesus, is our peace, and look what he's done, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. See, friends, the reason why you and I can love one another isn't because of our differences. Our differences are always screaming at us to war with one another. Our differences are screaming at us not to like one another. How can we experience unity and peace and love and joy 
in the context of the church, only through Christ. Jesus has done everything necessary for you and me to get along just perfectly. The problem for too many of us, including myself, is that I'm not always submitted to the reign of Christ. And so it causes me to war with Erica. It causes me to war with Anna. It causes me to, to war with Tristan and to war with Chad and to war with the rest of you, right? But Jesus brings us peace. How is Jesus all of these things? You said at the beginning of the sermon, Pastor, the incarnation reveals to us the character of God. You're right. But how do we ultimately come to see clearly that character of God? We see that character of God in the person of Jesus. For Jesus images for you and me exactly who is God. Look with me in two passages as we conclude our time together in Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6, John chapter 14, John chapter 14, and we'll conclude in John with the latter text from John chapter 20. John chapter 14, Jesus is engaging with his disciples and seeking to instill within in them a sense of peace and hope. He begins chapter 14, let not your hearts be troubled. If you believe in God, believe also in who? In me. But Philip, verse 8, Philip said to him, Lord, show us a father, and is it enough for us? And look what Jesus says. Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen who? The Father. And how can you say, show us a father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. See, friends, to know Jesus is to know the Father. To know Jesus is to know the very character of who God is. And the only way that we can get to the Father is through Jesus Himself. Philip would not be the last of Jesus' disciples that would doubt His being God. In John chapter 20, there's another, another disciple that appears that doubts exactly who Jesus is. We sometimes refer to him as Doubting Thomas. And here in John chapter 20, uh, 
Look at the end of verse 25. Thomas says, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will do what? I will never believe. So here's Thomas, right? He's, he's put his foot down. I'm not believing that you are the Messiah. But notice how quickly Thomas's tune changes. In verse 28, listen what Thomas declares of Jesus. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus reveals to Thomas that he's not just another miracle worker vibing for the attention, the affection of a group of people. There isn't some other divine being to whom Thomas and the rest of the disciples should be looking, should be waiting for, should be hoping for. No, what John shows us in this passage of Scripture, Jesus is the one Thomas and Lewis and Julie Paul and Kirsty and Amir and Diana and every one of us should be looking for Jesus is God. And in his incarnation, friends, Jesus images for you and me exactly who this God is. Who is he? He's a wonderful counselor. Who is he? He is a mighty God. Who is he? He is an everlasting Father. He is the Father of eternity. Who is He? He is a Prince of Peace. Have you trusted in this Messiah today, friend? Have you hoped in this God? Have you pledged your life to serve this divine being? Are you hoping in the return of this Jesus? Let's pray. God, we thank you for the revelation of your character to us in the person of Jesus. as we pause for a few moments over the course of the next month and reflect 
upon that incredible gift of, of Jesus as a babe in a manger. God, would you take this text of Scripture and stir in our hearts a greater affection and love and hope for you. Would you take a few moments where you're seated this morning and reflect upon the preaching of God's Word? If you're here today and you've never trusted in Christ, would you see the beauty and the glory, the might and the power of this Jesus as revealed in Isaiah chapter 9? And would you humbly bow before him this morning in submission, confessing your sins before God, that you've sinned against God, and that only he and he alone can save you? As a believer, would you pause for a few moments and just give thanks to God that He has indeed revealed Himself to you and me in this way. That we are not left to wonder who He is, what He's done, or what He's like. Would you thank God this morning for the incarnation of Christ? In just a moment, we're going to stand and corporately respond to the preaching of God's Word by singing. While we sing, if you have questions about what it means to trust in God, to trust in Christ as Savior, Please feel free to turn to someone seated next to you and ask them what it means to trust in Christ. As Lord, there are plenty of people around you that would delight in sharing with you how you can trust in Christ. Perhaps you'd like for me to pray with you. That you might know God better as revealed in His Word. I would delight in shepherding your heart by praying for you. Or thirdly, maybe God has impressed upon your heart that this is a congregation which you need to be connected to live out your life on mission with Christ. This would be an opportunity for you to express your interest in being part of this faith family. God, as we respond to you now, we ask that our response might be pleasing to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.